0: Ready? Oh. Maybe the sound needs to get adjusted a little. Okay. Can everyone hear me out there? Okay, great. Okay, well, let's begin. We have a full hour here. Well, good morning, and happy Father's Day to you fathers. Uh, Thank you for coming uh, this morning to Sunday school. Well, today is the final lesson in the Answers in Genesis Answers Bible curriculum. And for the last four years, David has taught through the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and it has been a blessing, hasn't it? Uh, Last week, he introduced what Answers in Genesis calls the last of the seven C's of history, or the consummation. And his lesson focused on the second coming of Jesus Christ um, that will usher in the end of all things. And in David's absence, I am privileged to teach this lesson to you. Although we will have one more week of Sunday school next week, I will wait until the end of the class to share with you what that will be. Well, last week and this week, our study surrounds what theologians call eschatology, which means a teaching what the Bible says about uh, future end times. Last week, David surveyed key end time doctrines such as the rapture, the tribulation, and the millennium. He also briefly looked at various views on the timing of these events, concluding that at Calvary, uh, we understand the scripture to teach the following. A pre-tribulational rapture, which means that uh, Jesus will come to take his church uh, to heaven before the tribulation, uh, before the tribulation period occurs on the earth. And also a futuristic premillennial second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Meaning that Jesus will return to earth before the millennial kingdom. And at his return, he will set up the millennial kingdom physically on earth and reign in Jerusalem. Along with all the redeemed for a thousand years. And at that time, Satan will be bound uh, in the abyss. So be sure to uh, view last week's. Uh, lesson online if you want to see the, get the details. Well, today, uh, our agenda will be uh, looking at um, what the future of our current earth and its surrounding heavens or universe will be. We'll also look at where people will spend in an eternity. And theologians call the final destiny of the redeemed uh, humanity, they call it the eternal state. Uh, for believers, we often think, Of the future eternal state is simply heaven. But the scripture actually teaches that there will be both a new heaven and a new earth. And just to clarify, we'll not be studying what happens immediately after one dies. Uh, It is true that the Bible teaches that immediately upon death, the believer will go to heaven. And unbeliever will go to Hades. But in both cases, it is not their final destination. Uh, those places are what theologians refer to as, the, as immediate states, in, excuse me, intermediate states, um, and uh, not their final destination. We're not going to be covering those details today. Instead, we're going to look at what the Bible tells us is, are the uh, future events that God has in store for both believers and unbelievers at the end of what is currently God's revealed will in the Bible. So for today's lesson, uh, we're going to look up several passages today. If you'll please, uh, we're going to start with 2 Peter chapter 3. So please turn there in your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to just um, set the context here, give you some background, and then I'll, I'll read. Uh, we know that Peter's writing to Christians since he addressed the letter to those who have received a faith by the righteousness of Jesus. As he indicates in his letter, many of these Christians are the same people to which he wrote his first letter, at which time he encouraged them how to respond to persecution. In this, his second letter, Peter senses that he's nearing the end of his life, and also he's keenly aware of false teachers that will surely arise when Peter is gone, and they'll try to persuade the believers through some deceptive means To turn away from believing the promises of God. And so Peter wanted to leave these brethren with a written reminder of what the word of God declares with certainty. His purpose is to encourage them to be grounded in the truths that they have been taught. So that they will recognize error when they hear it. And they will not be dissuaded by the scoffers who will come mocking these truths. And as we read, notice also that uh, there is a connection between... The Genesis uh, account of the Global Flood of Noah's day and the events to come in the future. So Second Peter chapter three, um, verses one through 13. Uh, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with The Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, notice in uh, verse 1 and 2 that Peter's purpose in writing is to remind them of words spoken by the holy prophets and apostles. That is to say, to remind them of what uh, is uh, written in the scriptures. Uh, The holy prophets representing the Old Testament scripture and the apostles representing the New Testament scripture that was in the process of being written. And so by including them together, that is, the prophets and the apostles, Peter is holding both Old and New Testament uh, at the same level of authority, both being in the Word of God. In verse 3, Peter starts off by saying, Know this first of all. It's intended to communicate priority importance rather than timing. Peter wants them to know that mockers will come in the last day. You could expect this to happen. Mark my words, don't be caught by surprise. He says in verse 3 that uh, what will characterize their conduct is their own lusts. And so, a question then for you is, what message will these mockers promote in their mocking? What are they going to mock when they come? Where's the Lord's coming? The second coming. That's in verse 4, it says... They're saying, where is his coming? Uh, They're going to deny the attempt, uh, they're going to deny and attempt to shed doubt on God's promise of the second coming of Christ. And the reason that they give here in verse 4 is that in the past, all things have continued without interruption, just like they have from the beginning. In essence, they are denying uh, the reality of the past, of past supernatural events from God. That's a philosophy known today as uniformitarianism, uh, which is the view that the slow and gradual processes that we see in the created order today are the same as what happened in the past. And this is the prevailing erroneous view of geological history that's taught in our schools today. Of course, an atheist, that is one not believing in God, would deny and certainly may mock the second coming of Christ. But these specific people that Peter's referring to, they're not necessarily announcing themselves as atheists. Uh, How do you know that? What what in the text does it say that might indicate that they're not coming announcing themselves as atheists? Roy. Uh, Yes. And also, that's true. Also, they're, they're speaking about from the beginning of, of the time of creation. Of course, an atheist would not acknowledge any kind of creation. Um, and so, uh, uh, maybe there would be someone like a deist who would say that, uh, you know, God created and then kind of left things go and didn't have anything to do with it. Um, also, if we were to read the context of 2 Peter, we would see that all of chapter 2 uh Uh, Peter is talking about, warning them about, again, false teachers. And so, false teachers, uh, they're going to come in and and sneak in um, uh, secretive heresies that are destructive. And so, they certainly have some knowledge of the Bible, as a false teacher would have, to be able to deceive someone who would be a Christian. Well, also, uh, next question here is, in making the claim... um, the claim that all things have continued naturally up to this point, so there's no reason to think that a supernatural event such as Jesus Christ's return will actually happen. What past events are they willingly ignoring? What was that? The flood. Right, uh, Peter mentions that. He says they're, they're, it's a, what's escaping their notice, or they're, they're willingly uh, ignoring uh, the flood. Uh, actually, there's two things. It says, um, here, they're ignoring, first of all, the specific details of the biblical account of creation. They may acknowledge some sort of creation, but they ignore the details that are in Genesis, as well as the global uh, catastrophic flood that will destroy the earth, uh, that has uh, destroyed the earth um, in the past. Also, by the way, uh, Peter acknowledges the Genesis creation account of the earth being formed out of water, verse 5. Um, you can see that in Genesis chapter 1. And that's in direct contradiction to the current-day Big Bang evolution, which claims that the earth was formed uh, by a fireball explosion and then cooled down over time. And so evolution is not consistent with the with the Scripture. It's very contradictory to it. Well, uh, it seems as I was thinking about this, that a current-day example, uh, a modern counterpart of who this might be describing would be someone who holds to a kind of a um, maybe a deist who believed in a creation but then has no details and just says that, uh, uh, that things evolved like a theistic evolutionist. Or, um, or sounds like a liberal professor, professor of a biblical studies class in a college. Um, and so uh, very much to be aware of. Uh, what are... What are these mockers trying to avoid? So they're dismissing the second coming of Christ. But in reality, what are they actually trying to avoid in doing so? They forget about a past judgment. Yes. They're ignoring future judgment. um, The promise of future judgment. Um, And if you think about what their motive might be as to why they're dismissing uh, future judgment and denying past judgment is so that they can live ungodly lives without consequence, without, without accountability. And so that they can also, get this, snatch naive disciples away to follow after them who are willing to do so. Romans chapter 1 um, speaks of people who deny God so uh, and do so not because of a lack of evidence But because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They love their sin more. And so to ease their conscience, they deny God and future judgment. Well, Peter gets very specific about how uh, God will bring about this coming future judgment. The idea of fire consuming and cleansing everything is repeated several times. You can look at that in verse 7, verse 10, and verse 12. The elements, it says, the basic parts of the earth will melt with intense heat. This judgment will be global in extent, similar to the past global flood, but far worse because it'll be more than global, it'll be universal. After Peter exposes the mockers' motives for their mocking, and he reassures his readers of the certainty of future judgment, he then explains why Christ has not returned yet. The same reason is true today, and we'll see that answer in verse 8 and 9. He begins by reminding his audience that God's view of time is very different than ours. He says, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a, and a thousand years like one day. And then he adds this, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. The point is that God is outside of time. And is not subject to the definition of slowness that others place on him. As the sovereign God, he does things in his own time and for his own reasons. For an eternal being, 1,000 years is no different than a day. But for humans with a lifespan of not much more than 100 years, even relatively small amounts of time can seem very long. And so Peter wants this, uh, his readers to keep this in the forefront of their thinking. When they listen to mockers. Then Peter explains God's purpose for for seeming to delay worldwide judgment. And he does this in verse 9. The verse that he gives is that God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And he further clarifies this in verse 15. If you'll just look over in verse 15, um, uh, he says... um, That God's patience and waiting is for the purpose of salvation. Um, In other words, today is the day of salvation, as Paul has said. And once Christ returns and God begins to pour out the judgment described by Peter, the day of salvation will be completed. There will be no more opportunity for salvation, no more opportunity to repent and trust Christ. Similarly, as in the days of Noah, once the rain started falling, there was no more opportunity for salvation for the lost who are outside the ark. Let me remind you that Peter is talking to believers in this letter. And so in this and his first letter, he refers to them as in his letter as the called or those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And so Peter is saying here that God is not willing for any of you, that is the called the elect of God, is not willing for any of them to perish. Of course, any of them in that day and any of them in any day, as long as they are still the elect who will come to Christ and haven't yet. So he will not allow any of them to miss salvation and receive judgment. And so until all the elect are saved, Christ's second coming is being delayed. That is what God is waiting for. Even though mockers mock, it will not hurry God any faster. He will put up with their mocking because he loves the elect and patiently waits for them to become saved in his timing. Well, in verse 10, Peter returns to describing the judgment and this time giving it a name. The name is the day of the Lord and he and adding to it that it will come like a thief, meaning that it will come unexpectedly to those who are not looking for it. This phrase, the day of the Lord, it appears at least 19 times in the Old Testament and four uncontested times in the New Testament. The Old Testament prophets used this term when speaking of both near historical and far, excuse me, near historical events And far future end time events always involving God's wrath. The New Testament writers applied the day of the Lord both to the judgment that will climax the tribulation period. And also to the judgment that will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Which is the context here in our passage in 2 Peter. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3. Mankind has been in rebellion against its creator. But a time is coming when God will judge the entire world with calamitous wrath to prepare for the establishment of his kingdom. The day of man will give way to the day of the Lord. And if you skip down to verse 13, with all this talk about judgment of unbelievers and destruction, Peter reminds believers of God's promise for them, for us, that God will create a new heavens and a new earth, one in which Righteousness dwells. Note that this promise is not new. But as Peter indicated in verse 2. It is said to be promised through the holy prophets in the Old Testament. For instance. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 65. Verses 17 and 19 says this. For behold I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will be no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. And so God states that he will alter the present heaven and earth in in a way that amounts to a whole new creation. Notice also that. In this new creation, a new Jerusalem will be the focus of everything. Isaiah mentions the new heaven and new earth again uh, in Isaiah 66, verse 22, where God indicates that it will endure or it will remain forever before him. Well, Peter, Peter's reminder of these promises is not merely informative, but he emphasizes a practical life response for all believers. Look back to verse 11 and 12. Peter exhorts his readers this way, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of of God? See, if we want to dwell in God's new creation later, where there is only perfect righteousness, Scripture is clear that those headed there should want to live righteously now on earth. The Apostle John says it this way about the believer's hope of seeing Christ at his return. He says, And anyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Well, that is all uh, that we have time to cover in Second Peter We're going to be headed to um, Revelation 21. But uh, before we get there, we're going to take a brief stop in Acts chapter 3. And so um, here in Acts chapter 3, we're going to look here at what the Bible refers to as the period of restoration of all things. It's a future time coming. Here in Acts 3... Peter is preaching to the men of Israel. And he says, "And look at what he says will happen in the future beginning in, in Acts 3, verse 18. He says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. This happened in Christ's first coming. Therefore, repent and return so that... Your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. Well, very briefly, because there's a lot more to cover, notice what Peter is saying in verse 18. Old Testament scripture has been fulfilled regarding Christ's first coming. And then notice that God's plan for Israel is not terminated, just temporarily suspended. We know this because here in verse 19 and 20, Peter says something must happen with Israel, the nation, before Christ, uh, before Christ returns a second time. And so prior to christ 's second coming, which is indicated here in verse 20, Israel must experience um, what does it say it says, uh, "Therefore repent and return and he 's talking to the men of israel he 's talking about not individuals because there's individuals today and have been for the last two thousand years who are Israelites who have been coming to Christ on a one by one basis, but he 's talking about in this passage about the repentance and return of national Israel, the leaders, the, the uh, Israel as a whole, um, not just a few of them. And so he's, he's commanding them, the national Israel, to repent and return, um, that your sins may be wiped out. And then at that point, times of refreshing will come. At that point, Christ will return. And then it also says... Um, uh, that in verse 21, when Christ returns, it says that there will be restoration of all things. Well, restoration means to return to its original condition or close to it. So this passage speaks of a future time when God will restore the creation, which is currently under the curse, um, return, restore the creation to similar but not exactly identical pre-fall-like conditions. Peter said that God uh, spoke of these things through the Old Testament prophets. And if you want to read about them, um, I encourage you to do so. You can look them up on your your own. Um, I have some passages listed here um, that speak of a future restored earth. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, 65, Ezekiel 36, Amos 9, Zechariah 14. There are many other passages Those are some. Um, Unfortunately, time does not permit me to show you the details in the Scripture, but I believe this future restored creation that's described in these and other passages, it will take place during the Millennial Kingdom, uh, which David taught about last week. And that's part, uh, part, which in part, is the time when mankind, through the last Adam, Jesus fulfills the Genesis mandate to rule and subdue the earth successfully on God's behalf. And we believe that Christ's future kingdom will, in fact, be a two-phased kingdom. Okay, beginning with the millennial kingdom uh, on a restored earth for a thousand years. And then culminating in a newly created earth forever. Earlier we read about the promise of this new earth in 2 Peter. And now, if you will, please turn uh, in your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 21. And before we read, I'll set the context of Revelation at this point. Uh, Christ has returned to earth and fought the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19. And... The earthly millennial kingdom reign of Christ has come to an end, uh, Revelation 20. And the final judgment of God through Christ has sentenced Satan and all the ungodly to eternal hell. Also Revelation 20. At which time the whole universe was dissolved. And you can see that in chapter, dissolved by fire. You can see that in Revelation 20 verse 11. And also, uh, and it was dissolved, excuse me, um, the, uh, the whole universe was dissolved by fire and it was uncreated into non-existence by the command of God. So uh, God, by his command, created everything out of nothing. He also uncreated everything into nothing, into nothingness. So it will have been gone. Uh, the earth will not be uncreated or dissolved by nukes. It will be dissolved by the word of God. And so Revelation 21 and 22 is the New Testament exposition of the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. that's found, we just read about it briefly, from Isaiah 65 and 66. We saw that earlier. The last two chapters in the Bible contain the most exhaustive and clear description of the future new heavens and new earth in all of Scripture. This is the beginning of the time when everything we know will be made perfect. Evil will be purged from the universe from the universe confined forever in the lake of fire. Death and sin and sadness and pain have been entirely done, done away with at this time. The new heaven and the new earth that replace the old will be the glorious realm in which believers will dwell eternally. And that is what theologians refer to as the eternal state. It will last eternally. We will only have time to selectively touch on some of the points here. So let me read then beginning with chapter 21 verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God. And he will be my son. But for the cowardly. And unbelieving. And abominable. And murderers. And immoral persons. And sorcerers. And idolaters. And all liars. Their part will be in the lake. That burns with fire and brimstone. Which is the, the second death. Well the apostle John. The Apostle John uh, uh, saw the new heavens and the new earth. Here, new doesn't just refer to new as opposed to old. By the way, I, I, I want to mention, um, please, as Christians, do not read those books. Do not get those books that talk about people who've gone to heaven and back. Um, there's one, Heaven is for Real, um, about a four-year-old boy who went to heaven, came back. Do not get those books. Do not read those books. Uh, uh, they have a tendency then, by reading such things, to... F- to. Uh, 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 to take, the, take such, such, such as someone that someone claimed that isn't verifiable and hold it above the word of God. We only know what uh, God has told us in the word of God about what is in the new heavens and the new earth and what is in life to come. So as believers, we should not be uh, uh, giving money to support those kind of things. Okay, here the apostle John is the one who saw the new heavens and the new earth. And the new heavens, the, the word new, excuse me, doesn't just refer to new as opposed to old. But I understand the Greek word translated new stresses that the earth that God will create will also be different. It'll be new different. This same word is used also in Second Corinthians 5.17. You know the verse well. It describes the new birth of the believer. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. See, genuine salvation given by God guarantees that the believer is, in, will, is and will be different from the way that he was as an unbeliever. If there has been no change in a person's life, then there is no genuine salvation. In a moment, we'll see what the text reveals are some of the differences between the old and the, new, the old earth and heavens, and the new earth and heavens. Um, Some of the changes or differences that we can be certain of. But first, some theologians believe that although the new earth will definitely be different, it doesn't necessarily mean that all, all sense of familiarity will be lost. In fact, there is reason to believe that there may be more familiar components in the new heavens and new earth than we realize. For instance, believers are not Annihilated, but rather we're resurrected. And like Jesus, who rose bodily from the grave and in new form, he had both different as well as familiar aspects compared to before, so it should be with the redeemed it should be with the redeemed as well. Um, there is a one to one correspondence between believers now and who they will be in the future. If the destiny of the earth parallels, that of believing mankind, then some aspects of the physical creation that exists now will also exist in the future, albeit in glorified form. Okay, um, back to the text here in verse 1. It ends with, and there shall be no longer any sea. Uh, Note that this is the first difference listed. Although it doesn't say explicitly why there's no sea in the new new earth so we can um, so we can't know with certainty some commentators have suggested that it indicates the elimination of natural boundaries stressing the unity of God's people others point out the sea often symbolized fear in the minds of ancient peoples and so stating that there's no sea it may indicate that there's no longer any fear well, John's description here of the new heaven and the new earth doesn't say much about the new earth per se. The primary focus in the remaining verses is really on the, uh, on the holy city, New Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven to be the ruling capital of the earth. We see this in verse 2. The new, he- the new Jerusalem, it said, is called a holy city, meaning that it is separated unto God. It is prepared by God, and it is a city adorned by God. The new Jerusalem will be, a th- will be the home of the bride, the glorified saints, all the glorified saints. God will recreate the heavens and the earth, merging his heaven with the new earth into a perfect combined dwelling place that will be our new home forever. Heaven and earth will be united and God's sovereignty will reign supreme everywhere. That's a quote from Pastor Bobby as he uh, preached through Revelation 21 some years ago. In verse 4, you can look. uh, Scripture comforts and excites us to hear that things that we dread and dream and deem unfavorable, they're totally absent in the new heavens and the new earth. For instance, our number one enemy, death. Along with all pain, sorrow, and crying is specifically said to, be, to no longer exist. Such an inclusive list means that there also be no sickness. There's no hunger, no trouble, no tragedy. Nothing that will provoke any worry. And no more sin that weighs us down will be present. Heaven, uh, um, nothing will be present in that regard. Heaven is a place then where God's people will dwell together with him eternally, utterly free from all the effects of sin and evil. God is intimately pictured here as personally wiping away the tears from the eyes of the redeemed and only complete delight and eternal blessing. Nothing but absolute perfection which means perfect righteousness, joy, and peace. Such things are honestly... um, Hard for our minds to even imagine, having never known anything in this life that is free from the stain of sin and its calamities. If you look in verse 5, God instructs the Apostle Paul, he says, Write these things down, and he announces that they are faithful and true words. The Lord is emphasizing the reliability of these great promises. And brethren, um, this is much needed. This is much-needed truth for our minds to dwell on in an age as today where mockers abound, scoffing such precious promises. Notice that verse 7, speaking of the ones who are granted to dwell here are those who are said to have overcome. According to 1 John Uh, or according to John in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, an overcomer is one who exercises saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a description of every redeemed person. All believers are promised the blessings of heaven as a forever inheritance. God will be our God. We shall be his children. Heaven will be our eternal home and we will dwell there. Listen. Listen not as mere guests, but with all the privileges of family members, children of the Lord. Scripture teaches that all who are believers are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Romans 8.17 says, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. So, if we are heirs, that means we receive an inheritance So brethren, Revelation 21 is God giving us a peek at our future inheritance. It is only by the grace of God that anyone will enter the new heavens and new earth. After saying who will dwell in the new creation, John presents a very sobering contrast by giving a representative list of those who will not be there. Revelation 21 verse 8 says this, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Um, okay, there we go. It reminds me, um, this list reminds me of the apostle Paul uh, when he gave a similar list in First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through eleven. it says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived." Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11, he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Notice that Paul says they will that these in the list will not inherit the kingdom of God in our re, revelation text. John spoke of the new heaven and new earth as our inheritance paul's first Corinthian text gives hope that the new, gives, gives hope here that the new heaven and new earth will be filled with men and women who previously lived these ways, but repented of their sins and trusted. Jesus Christ, to save them from their sin, making them fit for this inheritance. But all who reject the salvation that Christ offers and they refuse to repent and trust in Christ alone for forgiveness, they'll be sentenced to hell for all eternity. This list of sins in Revelation 21, it shows the lifestyle of those who have rejected the truth. It is a difficult truth but is the truth from the word of God. And we must not shrink back from warning unbelievers of the dire consequences of sin and plead with them to turn to Christ for salvation. Revelation 21, uh, verses back in Revelation, verses uh, 9 through 21, it contains a description of some of the physical details about the new Jerusalem, which we don't have time to read now. I encourage you to read them on your own, but to finish up our lesson today, I'll pick up reading from chapter 21, verse 22, and read through chapter 22, verse 5 in Revelation. So please follow along in your Bibles as I read. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 22. I saw no temple in it, reference to the new Jerusalem. For the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the Moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the Earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will forever excuse me, will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming, down from, coming from, from, the, from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations there will no longer be a curse and the throne and the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him they will see his face they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night And they will not have need for the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, the holy city, Jerusalem, is said to have no physical building as its temple, and no need for a sun or moon for the light source. Instead, John says that God himself and, the, and Jesus are the temple and the glory of God will, and Jesus will illumin, illuminate the city. The next section is very interesting and may be new to your way of thinking about the new creation. In verses 24, 26, and if you'll look over in chapter 22, verse 2, John mentions the presence of nations. And even kings of nations. The presence of nations and the world, and world leaders show that literal nations exist on the earth. Stating that they bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. Implies that activity takes place outside the new Jerusalem. Well, how can we understand this? While there is one people of God in regard to salvation... The presence of nations reveals ethnic and national diversity on the earth. The best cultural contributions of these nations are brought to the new Jerusalem. And these nations act in complete harmony since the leaves of the tree of life, which appear for the first time since the fall of man in Genesis 3, they function for the healing of the nations. Well, consider this quote from Mike Vlock. While the new earth will certainly be filled with corporate worship of God, the presence of nations and kings outside of the new Jerusalem indicates that the people of God are involved in more than an eternal church service. The new earth is full of diversity and activity. One of the greatest miracles which will bring glory to God is the unity that will take place among different ethnic groups and nations as they exist in peaceful harmony and work together to bring glory to our great God, End quote. Notice in verse 3, another of the many connections back to Genesis. There's no more curse. There's no more curse on man or creation. It is removed. And yet, for all the beauty and blessing of this new Jerusalem city, the best part is the presence of God and the Lamb himself who are on the throne. Verse 3 and 4 says this, that his servants, the redeemed, will serve him and see his face. Now, seeing God's face is very significant. In Exodus 33, verse 20, you may remember, God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. The hope and assurance of Old Testament saints was that they would one day see God's face. Psalm 11 verse 7 says, The upright will behold the Lord's face. Certainly King David had this hope in Psalm 17:15, He says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promised that the pure in heart will see God. And in John's first letter, he writes of the glorious promise for all Christians that will see Jesus face to face in all his glory. Well, this is where it happens. The hope of every genuine believer to see God face to face and live. This implies the ultimate perfection of our intimacy and communion And fellowship with God. John adds in verse 5. That God's name will be on our forehead. This speaks of both his ownership of us. And our wholehearted commitment to him. And what a contrast to the passage earlier in the book of Revelation. That you may be familiar with. It speaks of unbelievers having taken the mark of the beast on their forehead. Finally. In verse 5, the final depiction of the new Jerusalem, it reveals that the saints will reign forever and ever. Genesis 1 revealed that God created man to rule and subdue the earth. And the last verse describing the new earth explains that God's people will be doing just that. And how is this so? All glory and honor goes to the God-man, the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the sure hope of every believer that Christ will return for those whom he has been preparing a place. We know this will happen because we trust in God's character and know that he will fulfill his promises. This same message that brings hope and encouragement to to the believer, it should bring fear and trembling to the unbeliever whose future is eternal judgment. If you are that unbeliever, then please know that it doesn't need to be that way with you. If you will humble yourself and call on the name of Christ, confessing your sins to him and trusting in his sacrifice alone for your forgiveness, then heaven and the inheritance that God has for his children can be yours. And so as believers, our heartfelt response to the end of the story That we eagerly anticipate and vigorously strive for should be that of the Apostle John. The very last words of Scripture Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day in the new heaven and the new earth, you will reign. And God, thank you for making a way through Christ for sinners to dwell with you for all eternity. Help us to realize that this world and the things of this world are passing away. And to grasp the amazing wonder of what is to come. And That it would so affect us to live godly lives now and proclaim this truth to those who are lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, At the beginning of the lesson, I said that um, this is the last Answers in Genesis Bible curriculum lesson, Um, and I understand, uh, unless that has changed since I last heard, that uh, David will be starting up teaching the whole thing again. Uh, We've been four years going through this. He will start again in the fall. And so um, if you came in in the middle, if you just started attending partway through, uh, or even if you're here from the beginning, I know that he's learned a lot since those uh, four years ago, and he'll, I'm sure, be uh, enhancing the messages, so they won't be exactly the same um, in uh, the years to come. But uh, we'll be beginning again in, the, in September. Um, now, next week, however, is one more Sunday school class. Um, I could be corrected here, but uh, is, is there going to be another one after next week, or is next week the last one? Next week is the last Sunday school class. So there's no, there won't be an answers in Genesis lesson like this. We just finished. But um, next week, the plan is to show a DVD. It'll be about 45 minutes for that. And it will be entitled, The, the Building of the Ark Encounter. Um, although, um, actually, uh, the, bu- the Ark the Ark encounter is a, a life size arc with interior exhibits it 's not just what you see on the outside, but uh, um, these people actually the chief designer was someone who uh, worked at Universal Studios came and designed the whole creation museum, and also then designed the arc um, and you 'll see the DVD next week uh, it 'll talk to it'll show you all the ins- inside exhibits that were as they were being created and thought out. Um, This was built by the Answers in Genesis ministry, it resides in Kentucky, and the intent in showing this next week is to uh, whet your appetite for a spiritually enriching vacation for the whole family. And so I'd like to encourage you to please attend, and I think you will be greatly encouraged if you do. Um, Actually, I did end uh, earlier than I anticipated, so... I kind of practiced several times and went over every single time, so I wasn't sure (laughs) uh, how this was going to be. So if you have any questions, Uh, we have just a couple minutes left. No? Okay, if not, then you can get started on your food earlier. (laughs)